I love architecture. I deeply admire the skill and the craft that it takes to design and build awesome structures. And I know a lot of people who are really good at fixing and building and working on things. I am most definitely not one of those people. I am generally lucky to be able to unscrew a burned out light bulb and replace it with a new one. But it doesn't take a construction worker to understand and appreciate the importance of a good foundation. Foundations are what shape and support any building, any structure. A bad foundation can cost you so much time, so much headache, and as one of my neighbors unfortunately found out recently, so much money. A bad foundation can lead to some pretty outrageous outcomes. Take, for example, this famous building, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Uh, Construction on this tower began over 800 years ago, but the foundation was too narrow and it was set in weak, unstable soil, causing the entire structure to sink and sway and lean. Now it's become an oddity, a spectacle, something revered for its terrible design. People come from all over the world just to see for themselves how foolish it looks. Nobody wants this, right? We don't want to build anything of any importance on a bad foundation. As Christians, what are our leaning towers of Pisa? What are the things that will lean dangerously or even topple if we don't get the foundation right? that we won't understand and love God for who he really is? Yes. That we won't be able to live peacefully and lovingly with one another? Absolutely. That we won't be able to fully explain and share the hope that we have with others who don't see things the same way? You bet. Today we finish our very short series on the Trinity. We continue our exploration of the wonder and beauty of the Trinity as we attempt to lay a better foundation for three incredibly important theological structures. Our understanding of salvation, of how we are to relate to one another and live together in this world, and of how we relate to God himself. Now, last week, we focused on the Trinity and creation and how our own existence and our experience of the created world around us is more meaningful and beautiful and true when we see and know God as Trinity. Creation was, after all, a Trinitarian act. Father, Son, and Spirit together created this universe and everything in it and looked over this creation and declared it to be good, a place of utter beauty and harmony, and love. But then, in Genesis 3, something happened to damage this world. The beauty was defaced. The harmony was broken. The love was distorted. But what was it exactly that knocked God's harmonious world off its axis? And what needed to happen to restore it and set it back on the right course? 
Our answers to those two questions will absolutely positively depend on our understanding of what was right and good in the first place and on our understanding of God. In other words, how we view and understand God is our foundation. It shapes and supports everything else that we see and believe in this world, including understanding our own salvation. Now let's go on a little journey together. Right there, wherever you are right now, sitting in your living room, just close your eyes. Unless you're feeling really sleepy, then keep them open and maybe stand up, do some jumping jacks or something. But let's imagine together this world, what this world would be like with a single person, God. Can you picture him? This God did not create out of an overflow of love and glory and adoration, but rather created out of a need for those things. This God created to rule over creation and to be served by creation. This means that our primary function, the main way that we relate to this God is through simple, rote obedience. Rightness, goodness, means nothing more than right behavior. Following all orders precisely and to the absolute letter of the law. In this world, the main problem with Adam and Eve's behavior in Genesis 3 was that they failed to obey, pure and simple. And thus, correcting this wrong simply requires a correction in behavior. Punishment for wrong action, reward for right action, hell for sinners, heaven for those who obey. You can open your eyes. How dull, how lifeless, how meaningless that story is. Does that story sing to your heart? Does it pull you? Does it motivate you to live your life differently? No, at least not in any positive way. But if we start with a different understanding, a new foundation, things will turn out very differently. Now you can keep your eyes open this time because we won't need to imagine this story on our own. This story is the way it really is because God is triune, three persons in one essence, eternally engaged in perfect, self-giving, fulfilling love and adoration and worship for one another. Then we were not created so that God would finally receive glory and honor, but so that we might be able to join the amazing community of love and fulfilling hope that already existed. Being created in the image of this God means we were created to delight in harmonious relationship, to love God and to love each other. Now, when Jesus describes the two most important commandments in Matthew chapter 22, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. He is saying that is what you were created for. That is the purpose of your creation. 
So what went wrong? Adam and Eve and every single one of us who came after them rejected God's love. We turned from it and traded it in for love for ourselves. Why did Eve and Adam eat the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3? Because it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. It was a selfish power grab, a mistrust that God's love was really enough for them and that God really had their best interest in mind at all. Did this sin involve disobedience? Yes, but it went so much deeper than just that. It was a rejection of the love that was meant to fulfill and sustain us. It was a rejection of the purpose of our very creation to love and be loved by the God who made us. What then is salvation? Now, first of all, let's be clear. There is no way I could adequately describe the importance and power and triumph of Jesus' death and resurrection in just a couple of minutes. The reality is that Jesus accomplished everything with his death and resurrection. I don't care what wrong or malady or injustice that you can think of. The death and resurrection of Christ reversed it turned it on its head, absolutely destroyed it. I could spend a full year preaching about only what the gospel accomplished and still not have time to lay out an exhaustive list. But with that said, and at the risk of oversimplifying a beautifully and wonderfully complex topic, primarily Jesus came to earth so that his life death and resurrection could restore relationship. So that we as God's beloved daughters and sons might be reunited to the one who loves us most and that we might be restored to one another in love and peacefulness. Jesus came to fulfill our purpose for creation, loving God and each other, and then turned and offered his own life to us, literally giving it to us to have and to hold and to live out for ourselves. The perfect loving relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit was again made available to us. We were invited to enter back into that circle of trust and love ourselves. And to just add to the beautiful mystery of the Trinity. This was all done in a united effort of love and sacrifice among the triune God. God the Father sent his infinitely beloved Son, who voluntarily and joyfully, the Bible tells us, accepted this mission and came. The Son then, with the power and help of the Spirit, gave up his life for the restoration and the ransom of all people and things. The Spirit then raised the Son from the grave, forever destroying the power of sin and death, and proceeded to live in the hearts of all God's children, guiding them to accept and live into this wonderful and hopeful reality. 
Salvation brings about the reacceptance of God's previously rejected love. This is all good news. Our hearts should be leaping with joy right now as we have heard of what God has done for us. But there is still a problem. And that problem is that even despite this great, great news of the gospel, we still often choose ourselves over God and others. We still choose sin and we still choose death. We humans do not seem to be able to actually choose what we love. Do you feel that? We simply love by default what seems most desirable to our hearts. Like Adam and Eve, we are prone to reach out for whatever is pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom or whatever else is capturing our hearts at that moment. My heart defaults to loving myself and desiring acceptance and power and comfort so much more than anything else in this world. So what hope is there for me? The solution, the answer, the foundation is again in the Trinity. Follow this. The work of God, the Spirit, is to reorder the desires of my heart. How? By showing my heart the utter beauty and desirability of the love of God, the Father, as poured out, embodied, lived out by God, the Son. The foundation of knowing God as Trinity doesn't just support our understanding of salvation, as beautiful as it is. It also supports our ability to relate to one another and live together in this world. In John 17, we get to be flies on the wall in what has to be one of the absolutely most important scenes in all of the New Testament. Jesus knows his journey to the cross is coming soon and that his time on earth is almost finished. He only has a few moments left to spend with his disciples and family and friends. And in those moments, Jesus prays with them and he prays for them. And what does he pray? Let's take a second to recognize the absolute immensity of this moment. This is God himself on earth with and among his people And we get a chance to hear, to ponder, to cherish his very last prayer for the entire world. And Jesus addressing God the Father says, The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What an incredible picture. The triune God desires unity and harmony among his people, not just because it is helpful to live on the earth that way, 
but because it reflects what is beautiful and holy about God himself. The unity and harmony within the persons of the Trinity. This is the hope of the world, friends. The world out there is crazy right now. (laughs) If I got on Facebook or Twitter right now, and I posted that the current month is May, it would take about three or four posts before the replies to my post were calling each other idiots and fools. Now, I'm not telling you I have figured out how to reverse this and set the world back on the path to sanity. But I can tell you this. The path to God's heart is paved by unity, not division. Those who seek to divide us and turn us against each other are not following the path to God's kingdom. So let's keep a watch on this in our own hearts, first and foremost. And let's remember that we are all equal in glory, love, and as bearers of the image of God. As important as unity is, there is another key aspect of the Trinity that we haven't yet covered. The three persons are not only one, if you remember, they are distinct. They are three Father, Son, and Spirit serve different functions and they interact with one another um, using different strengths and attributes in order to accomplish their purpose. For example, we find the Son, Jesus, depending on the Spirit when he is led by that Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And we find him being strengthened by that Spirit in order to resist Satan's temptations. We also find the son being functionally subordinate to the father when he prays, not mine, but your will be done. Now, it is important to realize this does not make the son less than the father. They are co-equal in glory and majesty and holiness. This is one of the absolutely huge things for us to understand as we attempt to build our lives on the foundation of the Trinity. Jesus absolutely turned the idea of servanthood on its head. As Christians, we have to change how we view servanthood of humbling ourselves, of making ourselves lower in position than another. Jesus did those things not because he was lower in glory or majesty or holiness, but because one who is truly great in the kingdom of God will become nothing. And becoming nothing for the sake of lifting up another is the path, the true path to becoming great. This is why Paul can declare in Philippians 2 that we should have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a servant, being born as a human being. So the Trinity is one and the Trinity is distinctly three. How exactly do we build our lives on that foundation? 
What does it show us about this world of ours? It reveals the existence and the importance of unity in diversity. This is one of the most pressing issues of our world today, isn't it? Some seem to focus almost exclusively on diversity, desiring only to point out the fact that people are different and basing their foundations of the entire world on those differences. Other people seem to desire complete uniformity in thought and word and deed, in politics, in culture, in expression. The Trinity shows us that neither of these extreme examples has grasped the full picture. We can have real and authentic unity with a celebration of diversity because the Father, Son, and Spirit are working distinctly, but in complete unity for the sake of each other and for the sake of all of us. We encounter God fully in the Father, in the Son, and in the Spirit. Yet their divine work is neither interchangeable nor redundant. It all matters and it's all working together for our good. Now we also have our own personalities, our own values, our own preferences, our own backgrounds and life journeys. But what binds us together is more important than what separates us. And what binds us together is our status as the daughters and sons of the Most High, the bearers of the image of God and the followers of the only truly good King. And God doesn't just command us to be one and say, now just go out there and do it. But he helps to make us one by dwelling within us and forming us into the likeness of Christ, the one who was willing to die to himself to lift up everyone else. Why do we allow hate and frustration and anger to cause us to despise and to lash out at others? In those moments, we lose sight of the fact that God dwells in those others and is constantly trying to bind us to them just as God himself is joyfully bound together in the Trinity as Father, Son, and Spirit. We've lost sight of that which binds us together in favor of many other things that separate us. But it doesn't have to be that way. God has given us the same deep instincts and desires deep down in our beings. We all desire connection, union with God and each other. We all desire to worship and adore the one who loves us most. And we all desire to help and minister to those around us who are in need. I have so much hope yet for this world and for the church to be awakened And I am so utterly convinced, friends, that this is the path forward. Finally, how does our understanding of God as Trinity provide the foundation for our relationship with God? How do we practically live out our hope to be in deep, authentic connection with our Creator and Redeemer? Let's again let the persons of the Trinity be our guide. 
The father offered the son deep, abiding, perfect love. If our ultimate goal is finding, rekindling, and restoring the image of God that is embedded deep within us to be more like God the Father, there is nothing better that we can do than to love the Son. The Son, in His obedience and self-sacrificial love for all, wanted nothing more than to accomplish the will of the Father and bring glory to Him. If our ultimate goal is finding, rekindling, restoring the image of God that is embedded deep within us to be more like God the Son, there is nothing better that we can do than to bring glory to the Father. The Holy Spirit draws the hearts of the world to Christ and unites us to him. If our ultimate goal is finding, rekindling, and restoring the image of God that is embedded deep within us, there is nothing better that we can do than to proclaim the beauty and goodness of the Son. I pray that over these last two weeks, the foundations of our lives have been strengthened by our stronger understanding of the Trinity. I pray that we feel a deeper, more intimate, more abiding love for God and that that love would flow out from us into the rest of the world, just as the love of God overflows out and into us. You know, it was a shocking thing for the Hebrew people around Jesus when he began to address God the Father as Abba, which we would translate as Daddy. I'm not sure that this term meant a lot to me before I became a father myself, but my son calls me Daddy. He says, Daddy, when he needs something or wants my help. He laughs, Daddy, when I'm trying to be funny or silly with him. And he calls out, Daddy, when he's scared at night in his bed and he wants my presence to assure him or to, or to give him love and courage. To approach God with the familiarity and the love and the devotion that my four-year-old uses to call out to me, Jesus is saying, yes, that is possible and appropriate. God loves you that much. And Jesus says, I can 100% assure you that this is true because I am God. And as God, the Father loves me and the Spirit this way too. That, my friends, is just the beginning of the power and the beauty of the Trinity. May we never stop yearning and desiring to love God and each other this way. Amen.